we're talking about big questions that need big answers. And um, <coughs> I was wondering yesterday, or I don't know, the last couple days thinking about this, um, I made a, a little flyer to hand out to kind of advertise this, this sermon series. And it's got a big, a, a, a big green sign above an image of the church, of this church, that says, Answers. And uh, I just thought, you know, maybe that sounds a little presumptuous uh, that uh, to, to say to people, you want answers? We've got them. Come here. Answers. But, you know, th- the, the truth is, anywhere, you could, go, you could go to any church that believes and teaches this book, and you would find what you need. Now, I, I've, I've got to say I'm, I'm a little prejudiced in some ways. I think, I think you ought to go somewhere that believes and teaches holiness of heart and life. Um, but uh, I also believe any denomination, no matter what your title is, Anybody that will, that will do what God's Word says in 1 John chapter 1, which is walk in the light, if we walk in the light. So that means that we purposefully follow uh, a lifestyle that aligns with what we know God is teaching us to do or, or not to do. That's, that's what it means to walk in the light. You'll, you'll be okay, no, no matter what your title is. Um, we've been talking specifically about big questions that need big answers, and we're starting with this book, the Bible. And the question has been, why should we believe the Bible? Why should we believe the Bible? And, and over the last two Sundays, we've brought it down to one big reason why really we should believe the Bible. And, and somebody that's, that's been here, hopefully, maybe one or two of you remember, what is that one big reason that we say why we should believe the Bible? Resurrection. That's exactly right. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, without which we wouldn't have a Christian church. We would not have a Bible without that. Oh, we would have the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, but we wouldn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so on and so forth. We wouldn't have a New Testament without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything hangs on this. It's the reason we have the Bible. If Jesus had not lived and died and rose again, we wouldn't have the, the, the church or the Christian religion or the Bible that we have today. We've talked about some of the, some of the high points of why uh, we believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. And I, I want to remind you, I'm, I'm not going to try to go back and review everything uh, that we've already been through, but just briefly, um, 
our belief and our faith in the Bible is not a circular line of reasoning. You know, some people, we've talked about this, how some people's belief hangs sort of on this circular line of reasoning. I believe the Bible is true because it's from God, and I trust God because of what I believe in the, or what I read and learn from the Bible. And it's, it's circular. And it, it doesn't really work logically. There's a, Uh, it's not a reasonable argument. However, if we look at the question of the death and resurrection of Christ, which we have in the last week or two, um, we see that there is very good reason uh, to believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. There's good reason to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not just because the Bible says so. It's, It's outside of what the Bible teaches and what the Bible says. And because of all of that, because it is a, it is a, a fact, we believe, of history uh, that is just as verifiable uh, to us as, uh, as that George Washington was the first president of the United States. Because of all of that, then we can believe that Jesus really is who he claimed to be. So, The question then that comes to us after this point is, if all of that's true, then why should I believe and follow the Bible that I hold in my hand? This one. Because I think think most of us understand that the Bible is not just a single book. The Bible is a collection of books a collection of books that were written during a time frame of over 500 years in three different languages on three continents, and over 40 different human writers contributed to the Bible. And there are no original documents available to us. No uh, original writings. You know, the Bible uh, did not fall down to us from heaven on written on some golden tablets um, none none of that human instruments divinely inspired by the holy spirit wrote on well probably beginning with animal skins that deteriorated over time wrote down the word of god the bible so Even if the original was divinely inspired, even if all of these authors were were inspired by God when they first wrote it down, we don't have any of the original manuscripts available to study. What we have are copies of copies of copies. We don't even have a copy from the original. We have copies of copies of copies that are a little bit removed. So even if the original was divinely inspired, you know, isn't this this what we have right now, what we hold in our hands? Isn't it full of errors and contradictions? You know, isn't it, aren't, isn't it full of mistakes because it's been, it's been copied so many times and, and there are so many different versions? Why, you know, we have, why are there so many? Which is the right version? You know, we have the ESV and the NIV and the KJV and the NASB and the Revised Standard Version and the New Living Translation and the Message and, 
and we can just go on and on and on listing all of these different versions of the Bible. And after all, ha- you know, hasn't, hasn't there been parts left out? Aren't there, weren't there books that were really originally, they were supposed to have been in the Bible, but they're not in our Bible today? So what about all of that? Well, we're going to deal with some of those questions. But where I want to start with this morning is this question. Isn't it reasonable to assume that a God who cares enough about His creation to send His only Son to die on the cross and then raise Him bodily from the grave, a God who cares enough to give to humanity a written record of all of this happening both symbolically in the Old Testament and the actual accounts in the New Testament, isn't it reasonable to assume that if God cares enough about us that much, isn't it reasonable to assume that He will also preserve His Word throughout the ages of history? I believe that it is. I believe that a God who cares that much about us to send His Son to die and then to give us a written record of His work throughout human history and through His Son, Jesus Christ, I believe that a God who cares that much about us would not allow His Word to be lost to the ages of history, but that He would be interested in also working divinely through His power to preserve His Word. So, why do I believe that? Well, remember, the foundation level of our belief rests on this idea that Jesus died and rose again, that that's something that happened in history, a fact. Because we believe that, we can believe that Jesus really was who he claimed to be, the sinless Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. We can also believe what the book says about itself. Now again, remember, we don't start there. We don't begin with this line of reasoning. We begin with this foundation level belief that Jesus died and rose again. But once we get past that point, we come then to the realization that we can believe what the book says about itself. We can believe the Bible. So what does the Bible say about this, about preservation We already quoted some of this in uh, our reading, our introductory reading this morning from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. The prophet there says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The word of our God will stand forever. Then we also read another verse. That's a verse from the Old Testament. Here's a verse from the more recent testament. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, the words of Jesus. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Nothing will be lost. Nothing uh, will fall to the ground from God's word. It will be preserved throughout the ages of time, throughout the ages of history. Well, say, Pastor, how do you know 
that the Bible as we know it, this one, the one that we hold in our hand, why do you believe that it has been preserved and that we can trust it, that we can trust this Bible, this book? You know, if, you know, we some of us would say, well, you know, if it it'd be easy for me to say if I had if I had the the parchment or the animal skins that Moses himself had written on. And if I had that, then then I would be able to trust that that was divinely inspired. How do you know this is still the same today? Well, let's begin by looking, first of all, at the Old Testament. Let's look at the Old Testament and look at a few reasons. The Old Testament in in Hebrew is referred to as the Tanakh. Tanakh, that is is not a, a word really, it's an acronym. And uh, it stands for three, uh, the T, the N, and the K. Uh, the T stands for the Torah, the Torah, uh, which is the first part of our Old Testament. The, f- the uh, first five books, sometimes called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The N uh, stands for Nevi'im, Nevi'im. It is the writings of the prophets. Uh, the writings of the prophets, and then you have the the K right here, the Ketuvim, and uh, that includes the rest of what is in our Old Testament books. They're the poetic books, the Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Job, uh, what is sometimes called wisdom literature, uh, other stories, uh, others of some of the prophets, and other later books. This is uh, the Hebrew Bible. This is still the Hebrew Bible. And we, it's part of our Christian Bible. It's what we know as the Old Testament. This, incidentally, is the Bible that Jesus read from, the Old Testament. It's what Jesus knew. It's what Jesus quoted often from. In fact, Jesus' uh, favorite book of the Old Testament seems to have been Deuteronomy because if you read through the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will find Jesus quotes often uh, from the Old Testament and mostly quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, when we read in Luke chapter 24, you remember in Luke chapter 24, we have the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is after Jesus uh, has died and has been uh, raised from the dead, but the disciples aren't all yet convinced that Jesus uh, rose again. And so Jesus appears to these two men as they are walking along the road to Emmaus, and he begins to explain to him, the scripture says it's Luke 24, 27, He says he began to explain to them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the things concerning himself. So you see, the Old Testament is written pointing forward to Jesus Christ. And Jesus opened up the scriptures to these two in a way that helped them understand that. So how do we know that the Old Testament that we have today that's in our Bibles, that it is at least close to the original intention of what was written by the prophets, by Moses, by the other authors involved. Now, I understand that what the, the material we are covering uh, this morning is more, um, it's more academic, more educational than uh, inspirational. 
but I trust that it will be inspirational to you and challenging to you by the time we get to the end. So how do we know the Tanakh, this that we have, is at least close to the original? Well, well, first of all, we know because of the careful transcription that was required of the scribes who kept the records. You see, keeping a manuscript written on animal skins in good shape for thousands and thousands of years is not an easy thing to do. In fact, it's not possible to do, and the Jews didn't even try. What they did out of respect for the sacred writings, they had a tradition that all flawed and worn out copies of the, the, the Tanakh, whether it be the, the Torah or the writings of the prophets or other writings, any time that those copies that they had uh, became flawed in some way because of age or deterioration, they were to be ceremoniously buried and, and thus destroyed. And then the scribes who standardized the Hebrew text, they did this sometime in the 5th century, they probably also destroyed the, many of the copies that did not agree with the standardized version. And so there are only a few manuscripts of the Old Testament that date from about the 10th century of the Christian era, and only one of these is complete. That's the bad news about the Old Testament that we have and the evidence for the Old Testament. But the good news is this, that the scribes who copied and preserved the text of the Old Testament were very careful and meticulous in their transcription of what was written. They developed numerical systems to ensure that they had made very accurate copies. They counted the numbers of lines. Now, you can imagine this. Imagine, I don't know if any, did anybody ever have to write sentences in school as a punishment? Uh, I had sometimes to write sentences as, you know, I will not, whatever, in school. Um, had to do that. Um, I think the worst one I, I ever did was maybe 500 times I had to write something. Uh, I don't think I ever had to do 1,000 times, but I had to write some sentence 500 times. And you think, oh, over 500 times, never going to get this done. Um, well, here's what the scribes did, the ones that kept a careful record and passed down copies of the Old Testament as we know it today. They counted every line that they had written. They counted the, the letters and the words per page, and they knew what the original was supposed to be, and so when they would make copies, they would keep careful count as they copied. And if they made one single mistake, do you know what they did? They started over from the very beginning. They destroyed all. Can you imagine getting, I, no, I don't know, I, I, we don't have record that this actually happened, but I can imagine in my mind some poor scribe sitting and getting down to the, maybe the last line or the last paragraph of what he's working on and then going back to double-check his work and saying, oh, man. Because then he has to discard all of that work, destroy it, and then start all over again in order to ensure that the record he was keeping of the Old Testament writings, the law and the prophets, 
were kept carefully preserved and close to the original. Very careful transcription. Also, a reason we can believe in the accuracy of the Old Testament today, that it is still very close to the original, is the manuscript agreement. The manuscript agreement. And all all that this means is simply that the accuracy of the copies we have is supported by other evidence. Manuscripts found in various places agree to a great extent. In other words, for example, uh, example, manuscripts found in parts of Egypt agree with manuscripts that were found in parts of Palestine. B- uh, manuscript evidence, copies that were found in various parts of, of the world in uh, the, the Middle East, to a large degree agree with each other. And we're talking still about the Old Testament. Uh, They also agree with another ancient source of the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that dates from about the 2nd or 3rd century. Also, some of you know, probably most of you have heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, discovery that happened, oh, was it sometime in the 1940s maybe? Uh, When that discovery was made, fascinating uh, discovery, fascinating study, and... uh, up to that point, the comparisons that they were able to make were, they didn't go back all of that far in history as far as the age of the manuscripts. But the Dead Sea Scrolls dated about a thousand years earlier than the best manuscripts that were at that time available. And the comparison of those Dead Sea Scrolls to what, is, uh, what was available to scholars at that time show an astonishing reliability. In fact, a scholar who studied the Dead Sea Scrolls said that two copies of Isaiah that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls proved to be word-for-word word identical with the standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. And of the 5% variation that there was uh, those consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and variations of spelling. So, the Old Testament that I read from these pages, the Old Testament that you read in the pages of your personal Bible, you can be very confident that it is very close to what was originally intended, originally written. No, not in Hebrew or Aramaic, but but translated into a version that you can read and understand. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. Well, what about the New Testament? You know, the New Testament is the part, if, if we base our belief and our faith in God's Word in the, in the death and resurrection of Christ, you know, how do we know that the New Testament is not just a, bun- a bunch of myths and legends, you know, that's what people say, right? You know, this, this Jesus that he died and then rose again from the dead, it's just, it, it was stories that the disciples made up and they passed on. And really, some, even, you know, some people say the disciples didn't even make it up. Just as those stories were passed on from, from generation to generation, it grew, you know, like a fish story. And, and eventually you ended up with some... Messiah superhero who did all kinds of miracles and rose from the dead and all of that. How do we know that's not the case? And aren't there all kinds of inconsistencies and errors and mistakes 
let me tell you something, friends. I, I'm sorry if you're having a hard time uh, staying engaged with this because it is a little more academic. But this, these things, you will run into this out, out there. It's easy for us to come to church and talk, sing together and worship and talk about the Bible and say, oh, yes, we believe this. But, friends, when you get out in what they call the real world, which, by the way, that's not the real world, but what people call the real world, when you get out there, you will find people all over the place that will make these kinds of arguments to you. Oh, the Bible, that's good for you, but, you know, it's just a bunch of myths, a bunch of legends, fairy tales. It's not really true. Well, friends, the reality is the entire New Testament was completed definitely before the year 100 A.D., probably by the year 90 A.D., somewhere in that neighborhood. Now, Jesus died and rose from the dead in approximately the year A.D. 33. So if he died in about the year A.D. 33, from then until the time that the whole New Testament was completed in about the year A.D. 90, that's only about 60 years, less than 60 years. Not even a full generation has passed. So the question is, is that a reasonable amount of time for myths and legends to develop? Even secular historians tell us, no, that's not enough time. It takes multiple generations to pass and at least decades, hundreds of years for myths and legends to develop. So the New Testament in its writing was completed while there were still eyewitnesses alive or at least people who had spoken to eyewitnesses alive. It was written early. This is one of the reasons we believe in its accuracy. Also, according to history, the Apostle Paul died in about the mid-60s A.D. Now, we can verify that because we know when the Emperor Nero died. And historical tradition tells us that it was Nero who put the Apostle Paul to death. So Paul died in about the year uh, A.D. 60, say 65, 66, somewhere around in that range. And at the end of the book of Acts, we read in our Bible, the, the, the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is still alive. Therefore, the book of Acts and all of the books that Paul wrote, all of the letters that he wrote, had to have been written before the mid-60s. That takes us back another 30 or so years. So that means, friends, that we have most of the New Testament books written within 30 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Far too close to the actual events for myth and legend to have developed. So it was written early. Also, there is overwhelming manuscript evidence available. Now, there, the, the, the kind of manuscript evidence that's available for the Old Testament is not as good. The evidence for the New Testament is far, far superior. Now, I, again, there are no original copies, only copies of copies. But some of the copies are very early. 
in fact, Clement and Ignatius, who was a disciple of John, who gave us the book of Revelation and the Gospel of John, was quoting from much of the New Testament in their own writings by the year 100 A.D. Manuscripts of most New Testament books that date to about 150, uh, only about 90 years after the time of writing. Um, so, so, in other words, we have a, what is called a codex or a collection, a writing of, uh, that, that contains most of the books of the New Testament that is in existence that dates to about uh, the year 150. That is just 90 years after the time of the completion of, of the writing of the New Testament. There are some manuscript fragments, not entire books, but, but little scraps. You can look this up on the internet and see pictures of this. One is called the John Ryland Papyrus that contains portions of, uh, I believe it's 1 John, that is said to date to within about 125 A.D., so very close to the time of writing. We have, in other words, these are actual copies in existence uh, that date that close to the time of the writing. There are numbers of <coughs> uh, manuscripts. Uh, let me back up a little bit. That's dealing with the time span. That is the distance uh, of time between the original writing and the age of the earliest manuscripts. So the earliest fragments of the New Testament writing date to within about 35 years or so of the original writing of the, New, of the New Testament. The number of manuscripts available is overwhelming. Uh, there are about 5,700 Greek uh, uh, fragments of the New Testament, 10,000 Latin, 9,300 other versions, various versions, uh, uh, manuscript evidence of the New Testament, totaling, if you include all of the fragmentary pieces, totaling about 25,000 pieces of manuscript evidence for, uh, for the New Testament. So, so the question is, you know, which, which would be better, to have a lot of pieces of manuscript evidence to look at or just one or two? Which do you think would be better? Somebody answer me. Some of you need to wake up a little bit. The more you have, the better, right? The more pieces of manuscript evidence you have, the better off you are because the more you have, the more you can compare and see how well they agree with one another. If you have 50 pieces of manuscript that all claim to be the Word of God and all 50 say something different, well, that's not very good evidence, is it? Well, what we have is about 25,000 pieces. And so what is the quality of the pieces of manuscript evidence that we have? People would look at those 25,000 pieces of manuscript evidence and say, well, certainly there, there are probably hundreds of variant readings in that many manuscript pieces, right? Wrong. I'm quoting to you from a book that I have on my library when skeptics ask uh, edited by a man named uh, Norm Geisler and, and another man, I forget, uh, quoting from that book. Uh, they say this, It is easy for someone to leave the wrong impression by saying that there are 200,000 errors that have crept into the Bible when the word should be variants, not errors. 
A variant is counted any time one copy is different from any other copy, and it is counted again in every copy where it appears. So when a single word is spelled differently in 3,000 copies, that is counted as 3,000 variants. Now, some people look at that and say, so let's say, for example, you know, you see the word Savior. I'm going to use English just to make this simple. Savior, sometimes spelled with an I-O-U-R and sometimes spelled with an O-U-R. You with me? So if in 3,000 copies they spell it I-O-U-R instead of O-U-R, they would say, oh, there's 3,000 errors. They did it wrong. No, that's not an error. That is just a variation between copies. So, everybody with me? Okay, maybe you need to jump up, do some calisthenics, I don't know. Um, But but stay with me. There are only 10,000 places where variants occur. And most of those are matters of spelling and word order. That means it has no effect on the meaning of what is being said. There are less than 40 places in the New Testament where we are really not certain which reading is the original reading, and not one of those has any effect on a central doctrine of the Christian faith. Let me show you what that looks like on a pie chart. I don't know if any of you like pie charts. I went too far, sorry. So this is what it looks like on a pie chart. 87% of the manuscript evidence available for the New Testament, there is no change. Of the 13% where you find variations, uh, 11% are are obvious spelling or grammatical differences, word order differences. In other words, they don't change the meaning of what is said. Only 2%, now these are rough numbers, but it's it's close to this. Only about 2% Actual, uh, actually result in a, in a change of meaning from one variation to the next, and none of that 2% affect what is actually being said. So the result of this is this. This is a man named Frederick Kenyon. Uh, he lived from 1863 to 1952. He was a British paleographer and biblical classical scholar. Paleographer simply means he studied ancient documents, ancient manuscripts, all this stuff that we're talking about. He was a a professional. He held a series of posts at the British Museum from 1889 to 1931, and he was also president of the British Academy from 1917 to 1921. He's got the credentials. If you're looking for somebody with credentials, he's got the credentials. Sir Frederick Kenyon said this, the Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds in it the true word of God handed down without essential loss from generation to generation throughout the centuries. Friends, the Bible that we hold in our hands, you can trust what it says and that it faithfully preserves the original, what God intended for us to read. So, it's 11.52. We've been at this for 35 minutes. Are you okay to keep going for just a few minutes longer? Okay, we're coming close to the end. Pastor, what about, what about all those books that that people say, you know, well, they're not, they're not, 
they're missing books from the Bible. You know, they're books that were supposed to have been in the Bible and they're not there. Um, you know, the books that are in our Bible, why were those books chosen and not some others? That is what we call the canon. That's not like a, a canon on a pirate ship or a fort. Uh, that's two ends. This is canon, one end. And the word canon simply means a, a measuring rod. And the question is this, since the Bible is not one book but a collection of books, how do we know we have all the right books? You know, how do we know that some of those books that are in our Bible maybe shouldn't be there? You know, Martin Luther wasn't sure about the book of James. He said that that, that was the epistle of straw, and he said that he, he didn't think that the book of James ought to be in our Bibles. The others said, you know, well, there you know, are books missing. How do we know? Canon means measuring rod, and it is the standard by which we recognize that certain books were divinely inspired and ought to be included in the Holy Bible. The important thing for us to understand is that there were not some men somewhere who chose, but the books in our Bible were chosen by God, and it was a group of men who recognized that these books were the divinely inspired books. There, there's an important, that might sound like a fine line, but it's an important distinction. There's not a, a, a group of men with white beards in some secret room somewhere who were deciding, yes, this one's in and no, that one's out. But what is in our Bible was determined by God, and the task of humanity is simply knowing how to discover what writings, which were the ones that God inspired. Now, the official canonization, that's a long word, but that's the official sanctioning of the church that decided these are the books that are officially the Bible. Uh, that took place at the Council of Carthage in 397 A.D., but here's another thing that is important for us to know. This was only an official recognition of what the church had already been doing for over a hundred or more years. Very early on, in fact, in the early days of the early church, in the early days of the early father, probably by the end of the, of the second century, the books that are included in our Bible were already determined, Genesis through Revelation. So they, there were five questions that they dealt with on how to decide that. First question, was it written by a prophet of God? And, and incidentally, I'm, I'm barely skimming the surface of this. If you think this is wrong, or, or rather long, if you think this is long, then if we were really to dig deep into this, we would be here for days. You can read about this for days and days and days. We're just skimming the surface. Um, these are the five questions that were asked. Was it written by a prophet of God? Was that prophet confirmed by an act of God? Uh, does it tell the truth about God? Or does it contain outlandish ideas about God or about who he was? Uh, does it have the power of God? In other words, does the reading of the scripture result in changed lives? Does it have the power of God? 
And then finally, was it accepted by the people of God? These are the five questions that have historically been used by the church throughout the ages of history to determine what books should be included in our Bibles and what not. Now, there are typically two portions, and I'm, I'm moving. I have one more to go after this, okay? So keep holding on. Two portions typically that many people think should have been included in our Bibles but were not. First is the apocryphal books. The apocrypha, in fact, if you have ever seen a Catholic Bible, a Roman Catholic Bible, you, you will have seen that they include the apocryphal writings. Um, there are other, I believe the Greek Orthodox also includes the apocryphal writings in their, in their Bibles. In our Bible, if you go to the end of the Old Testament, you have the book of Malachi. And then the first book of our New Testament is the book of Matthew. In between those, most Bibles, you'll have a blank page. And that blank page represents about 400 years of history, during which there was no prophetic voice. No no voice from God speaking to God's people. The apocryphal books all fit in to that 400-year time frame. They, they do contain some history uh, about the Jewish nation. But one of the things that we should know about the apocryphal books, though they are sometimes quoted by New Testament writers, they were never accepted by the Jews as Scripture. They're not in the Hebrew Bible and were never accepted by the Jews as Scripture. Um, They were declared Scripture by the Pope at the Council of Trent in the year 1546. Does anybody else know or remember what also was going on about that same time frame? If you remember, tell me. I know at least one of you does. Say Say it again. Yes, the Reformation. There was a man named Martin Luther who was protesting. That's why we call ourselves Protestants. He was protesting what he saw as abuses and problems in the Roman Catholic Church at that time. Some of those abuses, or, or rather problems in doctrine, were beliefs like prayers for the dead and, and uh, purgatory, other things like that. And those were doctrines that were supported by writings from these apocryphal books. So that's just, just in short, that's one of the reasons why in our Protestant Bibles we do not have those, uh, those books, those apocryphal books. And also, incidentally, no apocryphal book ever claims to be inspired of God. They're, they're written as, as historical books. Um, so, m- moving on quickly. Um, no, too far. The other group of, of books, uh, the second group is called Gnostic Gospels. You know, have you ever heard anybody, anybody heard of the Da Vinci Code? Book Da Vinci Code, or may it, they made a movie out of it. Um, I'll tell you, when it came out, I was very, cu- I was very curious and intrigued by it. And so I wanted to find out because there was so much furor. Uh, so one time on a trip, I, got, I, I checked out the audio version uh, of the book, The Da Vinci Code, uh, from the library and listened to it. Just, I, honestly, I felt the need to know what is all this about and to be informed. 
the author, Dan Brown, is a great storyteller. But that's exactly what he is. He's a storyteller. Um, what he has written, now even, uh, even his books um, begin with an introduction that tell you the museums, the works of art that are referred to, da da da, different things. In, in the prologue or the introduction to the books, it will say these are all real things, that they really exist, and to some degree, that's true. But he refers to I- this, the story that he tells, he bases on one of the Gnostic Gospels called the Gospel of Thomas. There are other Gnostic Gospels, numerous. There's the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Peter. Um, just in short, if you're curious if, and you don't know, The story of the Da Vinci Code basically says that Jesus somehow survived crucifixion, got married to Mary Magdalene, and subsequently they moved to France together and had a family, and that the bloodline of Jesus Christ still exists in the world today. Um, That's, in a nutshell, that's the story. And it's a bunch of baloney. Um, these books, all of these books, the Gnostic Gospels, were basically forgeries. Um, They were written in the second century or later. So in other words, you remember how early the actual New Testament Gospels were written. These were written past the the second century uh, by people who used the name of an apostle in order to claim apostolic authority, in order to advance their own teaching. They were never, ever considered authentic scripture except by the heretical factions that created them. There were no old men with white beards in a secret room who decided, oh, we can't let the rest of the world know about this. We've got to tuck this away and hide it. No, these were books that were never, ever considered to be real scripture. Okay, all of that said, final question. Which version is best? This is, another, this is another thing that we could dig into and we could talk about this and study and, and take quite a while and never get to the end of it. But, but we're going to finish here. The version that is best is the one that you will read. The version that is best is the one that you will read. You could read the very best version. If somehow we could empirically verify this is the best version, this is the one that, is, that will take you the very closest to the original meaning, and you could read that as a purely academic exercise, and it would do you no spiritual good. Did you hear me? You could read the very best version. But if you don't read it with an open spirit and an open heart and mind, um, forgive me if you like the message Bible. I'm not a big fan of the message Bible. However, however, let me say this. If you are someone who really wants to know and follow God, and your heart is open to hear and follow Him when He speaks to you, any version of God's Word can speak to your heart, even the message version, or the New Living Translation, or, and I'm not going to get 
talk to you about a, a literal translation versus a dynamic equivalence, and we could go on and on and on, but I'm not going to. The, the application, friends, is this. People are either willing to allow the Bible to be relevant to their lives, or they are not. That's the big question. Are you willing to allow the Bible to be relevant to your life? That means I want to know what God says, and I am willing to conform my life to it. That's what it all comes down to. You can take this and dig into it and say, I, yeah, I, I guess, you know, there's good reason to believe it's true. But there are people today who will tell you they have reason to believe that it's true, and I've had them say it to my face. I, I, I took one young man through an argument to demonstrating the, the reasonableness for believing that Jesus died and rose again. And you know what you ought to come to when you come down to the end of that argument. If it's reasonable to believe that, then you ought to believe the Bible. You ought to give your heart and life to Jesus and live for him, right? He wasn't interested. He wasn't, he wasn't willing. Why? Because he wanted to do life his own way. And people, that's what it all comes down to. We are either willing to follow God and obey Him and have His Word relevant in our lives, or we are not. This Bible shows us the way to heaven, the way to get through this life. If you follow it, you will get there. You will be a child of God. You will go to heaven when you die. You will be a faithful representative of God's kingdom in this life right now. If you don't follow it, there's only one other destination for you. And I, I, don't, I don't want to be unkind. I don't, uh, I don't want to be harsh. But friends, it's just the truth. It's just the truth. Let's stand together, please. Again, I've been too long. Forgive me.